Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. Just a quick note before we get going, because the guys talk about debt in this podcast, there are a couple of technical terms they use. On two occasions, they talk about the yield curve, which is the difference in yield between a short dated bond, say two years, and a longer dated bond, say around 10 years. Uh, in a healthy economy, if you drew a line between the two along the years, the line should curve upwards. They also mention sovereigns, which is the debt of a country rather than a company, and they mention ETFs, which are exchange traded funds, uh, which are funds set up to track the performance of an index or an asset that are traded like a share on an exchange or stock market. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. This one's a cracker. Okay, welcome indeed to the Schroeder's Investor Download. Uh, the voice you just heard is uh, the voice of the inimitable and gracious David Brett. Gracious because he has once again uh, given up his seat and allowed us to have a sanctioned takeover of the uh, Schroeder's Investor Download uh, booth and recording booth. I'm, of course, John Mensack, Senior Investment Director, Emerging Markets and Commodities at Schroeder's. Today's topic emerging market corporate bonds, which, if not currently on your radar, probably ought to be. Uh, and of course, there's no one more qualified to speak on this topic than my longtime colleague and emerging market debt portfolio manager, Autumn Graham. Autumn, how are you today? Hi, John. Good, good. Good to be great. here. Yeah, great to see you. So uh, maybe just a little table setting if we can. Autumn, can you provide uh, your background for our listeners, please? Sure. So uh, I'm a portfolio manager here at Schroeder's. Uh, I've spent my entire career in emerging markets, uh, most of which was in research. I joined the firm about six years ago and then shortly thereafter moved to portfolio management. Um, and today I manage our corporate exposures within our emerging market for funds. Okay, uh, perfect. Thank you for that. Most podcasts, of course, uh, Autumn, are designed to be like law and order episodes, which is to say they're designed to have a long shelf life and irrespective of uh, the seasons outside. But we would be remiss if we didn't mention that we're recording on Halloween 2023. And I, I suppose our asset class today is maybe a bit, bit mysterious, but not all that scary. Would you agree? <laughs> There, there is nothing overly spooky about the asset class. I want to dispel that right away. All right, terrific. So what we're going to do then, we got a lot to cover, obviously. Uh, start us off at the kind of the 15,000-foot level. Can you help us to mention the size of the EM corporate sub-asset class and maybe how does this compare to more standard fixed-income sub-segments? Yeah, sure. I, I would love to do that. I do think uh, the asset class as a whole is a little bit overlooked. So I think that its size is, is underappreciated. Um, I think that that is partly a function of the fact that, it's, the fact that it has just been uh, one of the fastest growing credit segments over the past decades. So um, from the early 2000s, EM corporates were only about a sixth of the EM sovereign bond universe. Um, but today they stand at over a trillion outstanding, and this is the same size as EM Sovereign uh, Investable Universe, and it's only slightly smaller than U.S. high yield. So again, um, not as much attention paid to the asset class as you would expect for, for something of its size. Exactly. So what do EM corporates then bring to a diversified emerging market debt portfolio? Yeah. So. 
I think that it can bring a lot of different uh, idiosyncratic sources of return and alpha generation. So that can be a credit specific story. So a company that is improving its business profile or its capital structure, or perhaps it has a positive event risk. Um, or alternatively, you can use EM corporates to really turbocharge a more macro call. So for instance, you may be positive on a particular sovereign. You could buy bank bonds that yield significantly more than that sovereign. So also I would say, Autumn, one of the uh, one of the things we've spoken about in the past is that when there are a lot of flows into the asset classes, sometimes they go into ETFs, which are mostly sovereign only, uh, and the yields that are interesting in the sovereigns tend to get compressed, uh, but you still have corporates uh, and you still have quasi-sovereigns that can provide some nice value in those times. Yeah, that's right. So again, we kind of go back to that dynamic where corporates are slightly undercovered, I think, compared to these more traditional credit segments like sovereigns or maybe even developed market credit. Um, the investor base can be fairly different. So you have participation by local banks, um, family offices, pension funds, and they'll have different time horizons and, and return expectations than kind of the large unconstrained global investors who can dominate in either developed market credit or, or in EM sovereigns. Um, and to your point, ETFs are also a, a less meaningful presence in, in EM corporates. So for all the reasons, sometimes you can get a little of that excess return, um, more value in corporates compared to compared to sovereigns. Um, it's also interesting to see how those different dynamics can affect performance of the asset class. So corporates um, will deliver a different kind of performance compared to sovereigns when you have them both within a portfolio. Um, and we've gone through a couple of examples where you can invest in different stories within uh, corporates, but on an index level basis, uh, corporates tend to yield more and they have a shorter duration. And so these two mm -hmm. characteristics combined with being a little less liquid and having different investor bases, means that performance is going to be different and they are less tre uh, correlated with treasuries. Okay, terrific. And so what sort of yield pick up, pick up sorry, uh, can EM corporates provide relative to the sovereign, say for example? Yeah, so I think looking at the very top line um, indices is is tricky because the, again, there's differences in average ratings and duration. Um, but when you zoom into specific credit buckets, I think that that becomes a little bit more meaningful. So, for instance, when you look at triple B corporates compared to um, triple B sovereigns, there's a pickup of about 60 basis points uh, mm -hmm. when you look at the um, rating buckets within the indices. Uh, when you go into double B versus sovereigns, there's a hundred basis points of pick of pickup in yield. So okay. you do get a nice pickup there. Now, again, the um, EM corporate universe is a big sprawling space. There's over 750 issuers within the index um, in around 60 different countries, right? So you're going to get a lot of variation within that. Um, but I would say, you know, corporate will generally offer 50 to 200 and 250 basis points pickup compared to its uh, similarly rated sovereign curve. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. So one of the things I really enjoy about working at Schroeder's um, Autumn, and I, I suspect 
you do too, is that, you know, we don't talk our book here, right? And so we're, you know, we just lay the facts out and the investors make the decision from there. And I think that's really what they expect of us. Um, so let's talk about refinancing risk and EM. And of course, you've been all over this uh, internally here at Schroeder's and, and uh, we, you know, give us a sense of how closed is the refinancing window in EM corporates right now for high yields versus IG? Let's just start there and, and give us some historical perspective on that, please. In today's market, uh, to your point, John, I think we do need to be careful in this environment. Um, interest rates are high. Financing conditions are tight. Uh, and it is a situation where a a falling tide is going to strand a number of boats. Now, when you separate it by investment grade versus high yield, I would expect the vast, vast majority of investment grade universe to, to be fine in this environment. Now they will have a higher cost of debt uh, yeah. and through both in the bond market as well as local market funding, given high rates across emerging markets. Uh, but these companies overall are very strong, diversified, low leverage and they can and profitable and they can afford these higher rates high yield is different um and i think that there's a number of of red flags that you can look out for to kind of avoid these trouble spots and avoid the kind of companies that may not make it through this cycle um and so who are these who are these potentially stranded boats um these are mostly going to be small companies high yield can often be single bond issuers. Um, these are all kind of red flags. Their bonds will be trading at unaffordably high rates in the secondary market. So this is indicating mm -hmm. that the company has lost access to the bond market. Um, so that, would that be right now like greater than 12% or greater than what right now? Yeah, I mean, I think greater than 12% is really questionable. You know, it depends on the profitability yeah. of the company, but generally 12% cost of debt is is getting to unaffordable, particularly okay. for a long time period. But you okay. know, there's other avenues besides the bond market. Um, you know, you want to see if the company may have access to, to the banking market. Maybe they have a relationship with local markets, um, or perhaps they have a very strong asset base off of which they can raise debt or equity financing. So you want to check all of those things. If you're not feeling comfortable after going through that exercise, you know, these are some of the companies that we think are are vulnerable. But I don't want to leave it on a negative note here. I mean, I think that the positive news is that there is value in the asset class, particularly in um, high yield EM corporates. If you just look on an index basis, if you look at the high yield SEMBI broad, it yields over 11%. Um, this is meaningfully higher than it's been over the past 10 years. Um, and, you know, if you stay away from these trouble spots and invest in the companies that you think will make it through the cycle, uh, there's a lot of value. So, so who are these companies? These are large, well-established companies. Um, oftentimes you're going to, you're going to be in double B rating category or higher. Um, who have any sectors or regions that you, that you find interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's a number of companies in Brazil that, from a cyclical perspective, are going through some hard times right now, just in terms of perhaps the prices of their products being on the low end of the cycle. Um, but these are large, 
diversified companies, operations in multiple different countries. Um, they're double B rated and above. Uh, they have multiple bonds across their curve. We've followed these companies over the past, you know, seven to 10 years and seen them be tested through time. You know, Brazil has had a number of stress points over the past yes. 10 years. These companies have made it. Um, and so these are some of the interesting cases that we find. I mean, additionally, companies that could have a supportive shareholder remain interesting. That could be a government or a state, or it could be on the private mm -hmm. side, um, or even companies that have very strong asset bases that we think, you know, uh, the company could really raise raise financing on the back of this. Even if things got tough in the bond market, we think that they they could pull through. Um, and you know, this is not a large part of the index, but clearly amortizing project finance bonds that don't need to be refinanced at all, these structures can do just fine in today's market environment. Uh, terrific. So how would you rate then the quality of the, the corporate accounting and the financials that your team really analyzes very deeply relative to, say, developed uh, companies? So I guess big caveat being that I've, as I said, spent my whole career within emerging markets. Um, but I have seen it progress over time. And over the past 15 years or so, I've seen um, a lot of progress here. Uh, again, so so there's a lot of uh, variation in the credit quality and the size of these 750 plus issuers. Um, we have the double rated, double A rated issuers in, in Asia and Middle East, all the way down to triple C rated issuers in, in Argentina and all over the world. Um, Clearly, these companies are different sizes and they'll have different disclosures. But I would say as a whole, um, they've gotten better over time. The companies that make it to the bond market at all tend to be the largest, most well-established companies within these countries. Um, yeah. And at this point, they have solid <laughs> investor relations teams. They have sophisticated experience management teams. Uh, they have sustainability teams and, and they're improving their sustainability uh, disclosures. So, I mean, I would say except for the smallest companies, I think that the standards and the expectations are, are fairly high. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. And we're going to end here with, uh, we're not ending in the next second or so, but we're going to kind of pivot here in our discussion. And we're going to talk about the EMD uh, corporate sub-asset class through the lens of what we call the 3D reset, which is our view that we've entered a new era post-global financial crisis. And our view is that inflation is likely set to settle in at a level somewhat above post-global financial crisis numbers. You might recall, I know you recall that you know, we had a hard time for a while. The Fed pushing inflation up to 2% or so, a CPI number up to 2%. Uh, we may be in in for sort of a three-ish percent uh, inflation number going forward. That does have implications across the board. And that there are three drivers uh, that, that we believe will be fundamental going forward. One is deglobalization. The other is decarbonization and then demographics. So we're going to pull each of these apart. And then I'm going to ask you to and maybe just give us some thoughts of the types of EM corporate bonds that would work in this type of environment. So let's start with uh, deglobalization. So certainly COVID, the war in Ukraine, all of the ongoing geopolitical tensions have led corporations to realize the vulnerability of their supply chains. 
And uh, I guess I would stress that, you know, we're looking uh, forward to see what what's called a China plus one type of uh, supply chain where China is not abandoned per se, but marginal supply chain. Now that there's a higher priority on uh, the security of the supply chain, uh, marginal supply chain capability will be built out. That just on on the face of it is is probably inflationary, uh, as you know. And just stepping back and saying that you know EM markets, even if you exclude China, still represent eight of the top fifteen destinations for foreign direct investment. So uh, the trend towards nearshoring uh, is. You know, prominent, I think, in places like Poland, Hungary, Indonesia, Mexico. But what are some of the opportunities in the EM corporate world that you see that might work in a world that is uh, moving towards deglobalization? Yeah, sure. And and I like the way that that you kind of framed that. I think that um, deglobalization ha might have an aspect of kind of everyone's a loser, but you're really just seeing shifts in trade flows um, and investment patterns here. Um, and then in that in that deglobalization paradigm, we are looking for the potential winners of this nearshoring trend, and you just named a number of them. Now, when it comes to EM corporates, the way there's a very interesting sector um, within the Mexican real estate trust companies called Fibras. So, in general, as you mentioned, Mexico can be a real winner here in the nearshoring trend overall. It's obviously close to the U.S., massive demand center. It has low-cost labor force. It has free trade agreements in place. And politically, it's you know at least neutral um, to both suppliers and um, consumers. So you know it's it's a real potential winner in this in this new era. So when we're thinking about uh, nearshoring with regards to Mexico, we're seeing a boom in the northern industrial manufacturing hubs um, in Mexico. Um, companies are being sold out before they're even constructed. And this is providing really good benefits for these fibras in, the, uh, in terms of strong rental income, as well as highly valued real estate portfolios. Um, and in addition, just positive sentiment towards the sector means that these companies are able to raise debt and equity funding at very attractive rates, which they can then use to either delever or to grow further and diversify, uh, both of which are positive for the credits. So this is um, really a very focused play on this nearshoring trend and, and a very clear way to kind of tr capture those, those trends. Okay, terrific. Thank you for that. And what we always say too is that it's one thing to say you're going to electrify northern Mexico. It's another thing to actually accomplish it, right? So there's the opportunity. We'll see. It it all takes. It's going to take good governance. It's going to take uh, public-private partnerships and and limiting the graft. Uh, whenever in a developed or an emerging economy, whenever a lot of money is is thrown around. Uh, let's shift gears then to decarbonization and, of course, the, the direction of travel for major governments whether and corporations, whether it be uh, developed or emerging markets, is pretty clear. Uh, and the goal of achieving a less carbon-intensive world will necessarily require significant amounts of raw materials that are plentiful within uh, EM. So what are some of the opportunities that you see on a corporate side that can play into this decarbonization trend? Yeah, there's a number of different opportunities all around the world, uh, just focusing in on two. So I think that 
two countries that are making great strides are Chile and India. So starting with Chile, uh, the country has committed to getting renewables up to 80% of the energy mix by 2030. Uh, they want to remove coal entirely uh, by at least 2040, and they're actually well ahead of schedule on, on removing coal. Um, they're currently scheduled to get rid of 65% of it just by 2025. So things are moving along at a fast clip in, in Chile. And I think that one of the best ways to support these large scale transitions is through supporting the funding of the infrastructure needed uh, for these transformations. Uh, that's often where the bottleneck is. So there's, um, there's bonds that back the transmission line that connects a lot of the renewable generation capacity that's been built in the northern part of Chile. Chile is a long, skinny country, um, and it connects the generation up at the top down to the uh, demand centers that are in the southern part of the country where that generation capacity is actually needed um, and is being consumed. So I think that that's um, a really nice way to support Chile's transition plans. So moving to moving to India, um, it probably doesn't make the headlines, I think, as much in, in the West, uh, but it is something of a leader in the renewable space. It's fourth um, after China, U.S. and Germany in terms of renewable uh, generation and capacity. Um, and there's a wealth of opportunities within the EM corporate space to support some of this um, renewable generation capacity, whether it's through hydro or solar or wind plants um, or alternatively through holding company investment in, in the companies that are building out these assets, as well as some of the related infrastructure for India's um, transition plans. So I think when you think in particular for, for India, fast growing country with over 1.4 billion people, the impact that these investments are going to have is, is really quite meaningful. And I think that yeah. that's a positive um, aspect of this sector. Yeah, excellent. Okay, unless we're gonna touch on the third, third D of the 3D reset is demographics. Uh, and it's our view that declining popula populations, especially in developed markets, but also in some prominent EM markets as well, will just continue to drive uh, force uh, technological innovation to further increase productivity. Now, clearly, a lot of this innovation is going to come from the developed world. There's no doubt about it. But a lot of the componentry of that, the innovation systems, the chips and so forth, uh, are going to come from uh, the emerging companies. So just any thoughts along those lines, uh, Autumn? Yeah, I think that's right. I think when you think about um, smart appliances or AI, you don't naturally think of emerging markets, but you do see some of these companies like TSMC in, in Taiwan or SK Hynix in Korea, who are absolutely dominant in the um, semiconductor space. And these credits are are they're less yieldy. You know, they're very high quality, very advanced, um, developed companies in in developed countries. Um, but they're the spreads on those credits should really remain supported given these long term demand trends that that you just laid out. So I think that that's an interesting and an important aspect of that discussion. Okay, terrific. Well, Autumn, uh, this was great. Really appreciate your time today. It was good to see you as always. And I just want to say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for listening uh, to this uh, version of the Schroeder's Investor Download on emerging market uh, corporates. Have a great day. Happy Halloween, John. Happy Halloween, Autumn. <laughs> 
Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. If you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroder's podcast at schroders.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the Investor Download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. Investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 